Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. This is Episode 9. Today, we're talking to Dr. Kirsten Milliken. Kirsten is a psychologist, coach, and author of the book, Play DHD. She's also a mother affected by attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. She enjoys the strengths and wrestles with the challenges that ADHD brings. And she's the host of the Your ADHD Life podcast. You can learn more about her at www.youradhdlife.com. In today's episode, we discuss what it's like to be a mother with ADHD, parenting a child with ADHD, how to use play to manage ADHD, and the importance of practicing the pause when things get heated, even if it doesn't come until afterwards. All right, let's get rolling. Kirsten, you are, I mean, you fit so many That's of Dr. my- Kirsten. I'm sorry, I, oh, doctor. So doctor, <laughs> doctor, Dr. Kirsten. Um, <laughs> I mean, you just check so many boxes for this podcast. You're, you are an ADHD expert all the way to doctor, um, and, and also a parent with ADHD and a parent of ADHD. Uh, you were just telling me about how you came to learn that you have ADHD. How did that go? Oliver, my younger son, was, I guess he was in third grade. He was going for his annual exam, and his pediatrician happened to be a college friend of mine. So, you know, during the exam, we were chit-chatting. And he had asked Oliver to take his socks off so that he could check his feet. And Oliver took one sock off and started using the reflex hammer because that's kind of fun and cool. <laughs> and was playing around and the pediatrician, Chris, said, uh, Oliver, could you take your other sock off, you know, a few minutes later? And Oliver's like, yeah. He again got distracted by the reflex hammer. Like it was just so much fun. And so it took like two or three times asking him to take a sock off for Oliver to finally take his sock off. Chris said to me, do you ever think that Oliver has an attention problem? And I was like, no, he's just like a really fun kid. Chris was a half an hour late. So Oliver was in his underwear in this room for a half an hour with me. And he was actually putting on a musical that he made up the whole time while we were waiting. It was hysterical. <laughs> and so I was like, no, he's just a really creative, fun kid. And he's like, okay, whatever. The next week, we had our parent-teacher conferences, and his teacher, who used to be a special education teacher, said out of the blue, uh, do you ever think Oliver's got some attention issues? <laughs> <laughs> uh, why do you say that? And she said, well, there's all these notes for the last few years that he's been in school from his teachers saying that he has a harder time paying attention than the other kids, saying that, you know, all of these things. And I was like, interesting. They never shared those thoughts with me. Wow. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, it was like they were just recording them. They didn't have enough to 
to let me know, I guess. I don't know. And I also don't know if it was because they knew I was a psychologist that they didn't say anything. I don't know why. But she did say something. And so shortly after that, I was like, okay, I started paying attention to what was going on. I was like, oh, you know, here I am, a psychologist. Not just a psychologist, but a psychologist who had worked as the lead psychologist in a school system already at that point. Mm-hmm. A psychologist who was doing neuropsych and psychoeducational evaluations, lots of them for other kids who had ADHD. And I wasn't putting my son into that context. It was different because it was so up close. And so obviously, once you start paying attention differently, you start noticing those things. And then Shortly after that, I was literally sitting at home one day and I thought, well, ADHD is highly heritable and his father really doesn't have ADHD There's, by any stretch of the imagination. And it runs very deeply in my family. And so it was like, oh, oh my God, right? But I was inattentive. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the, the you know, hyperactive type, which again is always so much easier to, to point out, but everything, you know, that, that aha moment of oh my god it all makes sense now all of the comments of you know if Kirsten would just try harder or if you know she does so well but then gets bored or doesn't apply herself or whatever so all of those comments all of my life made sense it was just such a relief between me and my mom because my mom would always say when you're done you're just done you like cut yourself off and there's nothing anybody can do and it's so maddening she would say and so when I realized that I had ADHD, and then it took a while for me to have a conversation with my mom, but when I pointed that out, she was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> it was like all of these frustrations, you know, leaving the last few dishes when it was my turn to do the dishes because I got distracted by something. All of those things kind of made sense. So it was embarrassing to realize that having done the work for other people for so long, but it also made sense why it came so easily to me and everybody would say, you know, send them to Dr. Milliken. She just gets it. And I was like, oh, now I yeah. get why I get it. And that's a thing in the ADHD professional community. Like the professionals who work with ADHD, we all yeah. have it. Like yeah. almost everybody. And the people who don't have it and try to work with folks with ADHD, all the reports I get is that they don't get it and they don't do as good of a job and they're not as understanding and it's just because you don't have it. I think Ari Tuckman's the one person, the one psychologist that I can think of who doesn't have ADHD, who I think gets it. Yeah. He's a different animal. He does. He gets it really deeply. He does. But yeah, for the most part, it's difficult when people say, do you have a referral for me? Because I know so many people who, who say that they work with people who have ADHD, but it really is, they're just looking at what I think of as like the DSM or diagnostic symptoms. They don't really have a deeper understanding of what, it, what those really mean and what they look like and what the other symptoms are that aren't even in the DSM. I think some of that is because ADHD is a, is a more subtle mental health disorder, right? Like it's, it's not as obvious, even as depression, because we don't have times when we have to just be in our bed for weeks on end. It's just a little bit sneakier. It's a little bit more like a ninja. So much of our challenges are really the essential challenges of life. I did a workshop last night on ADHD, and there was this guy there who was pushing back hard. Inside the first five minutes of my workshop, he was like, isn't this just laziness? Like, that's where we started. Yeah. And so it was me just kind of being like, well, no, it's the essential struggle of life. But it's a matter of degree. It's yes, everybody struggles with organization for the most part. Everyone struggles with being motivated to do the thing that they need to do. But 
if you don't have ADHD, on your worst day of not wanting to do the thing, yeah, that's where we start. Right. And we might not even start there. We might start yeah. further over. And to what you feels like a 10, we know that's a three. Yep. That's nothing compared to where we ordinarily are because we're usually at fours, fives, and sixes. And, and that's just a small piece that not to mention like time awareness and all the other stuff that goes on with ADHD that makes everything so much harder, but also is really easy to moralize and really easy to write off. And so if you don't get that, it's, it's just hard to validate it. Now, I know this is your show, but I have a question. Do yeah. you think that moving into the age of technology where attention and focus are becoming more of a hot topic because of how technology affects us, that it makes it even harder to differentiate for people, you know, the daily struggles of life for most people and the difference having ADHD? Yes, it does. Unless you have a really good metaphor and metaphors are my jam. Oh, so I have a really good metaphor. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> um, I, so I often, and, and listeners to the podcast have already heard this one, but this is a different way to use it. I equate ADHD to asthma because another essential challenge of life is breathing. Everybody can run and get winded. Everybody can be in a smoky room and get winded. We all know what that's like. For people with asthma, it's much more dangerous. It's much more significant. You're going to get more winded. You're going to be wheezing instead of just breathing deeply. So the way I like to, to work that metaphor for your particular question around the whole world is now much more distracting. It's as though someone with asthma is just constantly in a very smoky room and we're expecting them to be able to breathe as well as someone who doesn't have asthma. Yeah. We wouldn't. We wouldn't expect them to be okay in a smoky room. Yeah. We would anticipate that they're going to suffer from that. And now people with ADHD are in the equivalent of a smoky room where we're in a, an environment that's full of distractions. We carry distractions in our pocket. Our cell phones are screaming at us to look at them all the time. On our wrists. Yeah, right. And everybody who's listening to the podcast right now just remembered their cell phone and wants to look at it right now. That's how strong yes. that is. And so folks with ADHD are now in a much more challenging environment. And it's that much worse for us. And we have to build stronger barriers and stronger boundaries to help us maintain what is a normal level of attention for us, which is not as good as everybody else. You know, it's distracting me. The image of, you know, those airport smoking rooms? Mm -hmm. My image as you're talking about that is, you know, anybody can go into those smoking rooms, right? And if you're a smoker, it doesn't affect you that much because it's your own smoke and you're used to it. And the general public can go in and they may, <coughs> you know, <coughs> gross in there. But if you're somebody with asthma and you go into that smoking room, you are going to be hacking up a lung and an emergency might come in and try and help you out. You might not make your flight. And if you do make your flight, you're going to continue to hack until you land. Right. Until you get fresh air because you don't get fresh air on the plane. Even fresh air is not going to fix it because you're going to continue to have the response of your tightened lungs and your inflammation for potentially days. Right. So for those of you who just caught on, we weren't actually talking about asthma. We're actually talking about having ADHD. I think that's a great analogy. Thank you. Yeah. So going back to you as a parent um, and having ADHD, and your son also has ADHD. So we've got, and you have two sons, right? I have two of them. Yep. One with, one without. How does ADHD play out in your house? <laughs> what does it add? What does it make harder? What's that look like? It adds a lot of fun because thankfully, Oliver caught on to the whole play DHD thing and so we're gonna get to that yeah so I mean he has whenever he says to me he's bored I'm like so entertain me 
because I love being entertained, right? So that serves two purposes. It gets his brain going, it gets my brain going. So that's a lot of fun in the household. Unfortunately, my older son, Harris, and his dad are much quieter people. So it's been this like ongoing joke for a long time that eventually Oliver and I would live together and eventually Harris and his dad would be together and we could come over every once in a while and visit Harris and his dad. We have to try and tone it down because Oliver and I can tend to get a little bit loud and silly sometimes. I will say that Harris does join in sometimes and he's the kid who, you know, it comes out of left field and when he's funny, he's just hysterically funny because he's so dry most of the time. But then there are the frustrations, obviously, because when Oliver and I are being goofy, we're being more impulsive, we're emotional, that is, it's frustrating for, you know, whoever else is in the house. And oftentimes, if Oliver's frustrated than I am or vice versa, um, obviously, as the parent, when Oliver is frustrated like with schoolwork or he's just being emotional because he is a sensitive kid he's very connected to his friends he's affected by them you know I try not to be the psychologist or the coach with him I try and be a mom but with those skills I know what that's like yeah because I want things to be better for him I don't want it to be a struggle for him Uh, you know when I was growing up I didn't feel like I fit in and that was just horrible I mean books were my best friend and I would have some friends but they always felt very tentative to me And there were other struggles that happened academically. So I definitely want to make sure those aren't happening for him. I just want to loop back real quick because you said that when Oliver is frustrated, obviously you're frustrated too. And when you're frustrated, he's frustrated too. And you threw in the word obviously, if I'm remembering correctly, but I'm betting there's some parents out there who are going, wait, what? And that might be a bit of a revelation for them that when your kid is frustrated, those emotions might bleed into your emotions and your emotional state might bleed into your kid's emotions. So can you sort of tease that out a little bit for us? And what, how does that work? What's going on there? One of the things that I talk about a lot on your ADHD life is that the emotional challenges of ADHD are one of the, they're not one of the diagnostic characteristics when you go to get a diagnosis. Right. It's not in the DSM, but I think it's one of the most impactful symptoms of ADHD at any age, but I've found getting older, it's been even more so. But I know like Oliver is very emotionally sensitive. He's, he's very intuitive. The movie Up. The beginning. <laughs> well, no, it was actually further along in the movie. The little kid wants to get home and the old man wants to get home and the dog. And I walked in on Oliver watching it for the first time and he was just bawling. And I was like, what, what's in this movie that I missed? And he's like, it's just so sad. I was like, oh my God, my poor child. And he often comes home very affected by interactions that he's had with his teachers or with his friends. And as a parent, I want to fix that. But as a psychologist and a coach and an educated mom, I also want to first help him so that he can fix it because I am not going to be there for the rest of his life and he needs to develop those skills. And sometimes it's just, yeah, you have the emotion and it's okay, even if it's uncomfortable right now, sometimes that's okay, because it means you care about something, or that you're a, a sensitive person, which is, I think, an amazing quality. But sometimes, you know, when I'm being emotional, he can be reactive to it too, because he is sensitive. So it goes back and forth. Does that add extra pressure to you as a parent to want to manage your emotions a little better, to want to squash stuff that you might not otherwise squash, or is, are you just sort of rolling with it? 
years ago, I took on the challenge of being less emotionally reactive as a personal challenge for myself because it was affecting me in other ways. So I don't tend to be, I don't get dramatic, dramatic about things. I don't get really loud. I don't, you know, if I'm mad, rather than having a tantrum or getting loud or lashing out, I try and take a breath first always and then say, this is really pissing me off in that tone. And often the next thing I say is, and I know that's my problem, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, or something because whatever is happening with me emotionally, really objectively, if I stop and think about it, do that pause, realize like Oliver or his brother or whoever's in front of me didn't do, try and do something to me to piss me off. That's not their intention, mm -hmm. right? Every blue moon it is. But most people aren't trying to piss us off. Our kids aren't trying to piss us off. Our partners are not trying to do things to piss us off. Right. But that's our reaction because of how we interpret it in our heads. I like the way you're saying this is really pissing me off. You're not saying you're really pissing me off. You're not putting it on the person. It's just the situation. Yeah. So you have written a book called Play ADHD. I did. That is phenomenal. Thank you. It explains ADHD in a very accessible way. When we met in person for the first time, I think it was one of the first things I said to you was that how big of a fan I was of, of the way it explains ADHD in the beginning of the book. And one of the things that was most compelling about it for me was at the time I was having trouble reading ADHD books yes. because the first, like the first half of it was stuff I already knew and trying to get through that to have the context for the second half was hard. Yes. But the way you were saying things and the way you were laying it out made it really accessible. I didn't feel like I already knew it because I was going, oh, I know this, but I never would have thought to say it this way. I never would have explained it this way. And this makes it a lot easier to understand. I just have to tell you, so that was at the ADHD International Conference for the ACO, which I was chairing that year. And my book had come out on April 1st. And I think the conference was like three weeks later. And you came up to me at the conference and said exactly what you just said right now. And it just made like my year. And I've remembered it. There's a lot of things people say that you don't remember, but I remembered you saying that. I could tell you where we were in that hotel when you said it. Wow. That's awesome. I'm glad. Yeah. I read it on the flight over. Well, I appreciate that you took the time to do that and to give me that compliment because it's, it's stuck with me and it's meant a lot to me. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. Um, especially because this podcast is aimed at parents, I really want to dig into the idea of play as a way to help kids manage their ADHD yes. and, and even help parents manage it for that matter and help them get their kids to do the things they want to do and learn the things they want to learn. So kids know how to play. They're born to know how to play. So the book was actually written for adults. And everybody kept saying to me, why adults? And I said, because kids know how to play. The problem is, is that all of the adults have forgotten. And they need to recognize that this is a natural way for them to be. And when you have ADHD, it's something that you should embrace because it can actually help you to manage some of the challenges of ADHD. And if adults get that, then they can start helping the kids who have ADHD by encouraging them to play in ways that will be helpful to them as well. The link between ADHD and play is back to the brain again, right? So ADHD is a deficit in dopamine and in the transportation of dopamine in the uh, systems of our brain. And play creates dopamine in our system. It's the feel-good neurotransmitter. So when we're playing, we're creating the chemical that is in deficit that we need in our brain so that we are 
better able to stay engaged and interested and motivated because we know that ADHD presents inconsistently. We're doing well when we are paying attention and interested and motivated. That means we need more dopamine so that we can be in that state. So that's why play. And by play, it doesn't necessarily mean just like kicking a ball or going out and playing a game. There's all kinds of play. So I mean, doing this podcast with you, having a conversation to me is playful. And one of my big things is making learning more playful. So you can read about history in a book or you can act it out. You can get dressed up. You can, you know, take on a character. You can and learn about history that way. That's a very playful way to do it. You can, you know, use dominoes and dice and cards to learn different math strategies and facts. There are all different ways that we can use play in an, in an educational system and then also obviously in the home system to make things more fun. Cleaning a room, um, which is a challenge still for me. <laughs> so let's play with that. Let's <laughs> I guess, play um, with that. To coin a term. You don't want to work um, on it? No, I don't want to work on it. it. I want to play with that. (laughs) How could we use play to help a kid clean their room? So one of my favorite people, Sarah Kesty, who is an educator and has written a book, uh, did an interview with me one time, and she said one of the ways that she gets her kids who have learning issues to do anything is to turn it into a party. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it's a classroom, cleaning up the classroom, it's it's a cleaning the classroom party. How do you make it into a party? So... If you want to clean your bedroom, let's make it into a party. How do we turn it into a party, right? Or a scavenger hunt. (laughs) We'll come back to that one. Yeah. But keep going. I just have something to add to that. So, you know, what's your kid's favorite music? Put, Put their favorite music on at a level that is, might be somewhat obnoxious, but really makes them feel energized. You can turn it into a competition. So I've got two kids. They can compete in cleaning their room. Or it could be part of the project. Like they all have to do their laundry. Whoever gets their clothes folded and put away first. And sometimes it's not a competition to get something or to be number one. There are different ways to do it. So, you know, if everybody gets this done in the next five minutes, we will all get to go do blah, blah, blah. And you can help each other. (laughs) So, you know, so it becomes a team event challenge. Yeah. I'm picturing a whole bunch of kids in a bedroom with party hats on cleaning. Yeah, right? <laughs> so yeah, if you want to have a party at your house, sure. If your friends all want to help you clean your room, then we can have a pizza party. <laughs> I don't know how that would go over. Because I don't know if kids are like adults. Like, I'm okay going to somebody else's house and helping them clean. But if somebody else comes over to my house, I'll clean it before they get there. That's why I invite people over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ADHD brain at its best. So I want to hear about the scavenger hunt now. So I actually wanted to ask you about this yeah. because you're the, you're the ADHD, the play DHD expert, yeah. right? My kids kept saying that they wanted something special. Yep. Like they were just in a mode where they wanted something special. So I was like, all right, I'll make you a scavenger hunt. And I have ADHD. So it took me months. It didn't take me months to do it. It took me months to start it. And then it took me like a day and a half to actually put the whole thing together. Right. Um, and not working the whole time. It was like a few hours. And I'm also an ADHD coach and a teacher and a former guidance counselor. So this was not like a normal scavenger hunt. 
it was a scavenger hunt with like depth, right? Like it was, I was teaching skills and all kinds of stuff within the context of the scavenger hunt. I'm actually kind of proud of it. I think I had like 12 clues and it was one of those scavenger hunts where you're not collecting stuff. It's like this clue leads to this clue leads to this clue leads to this clue. And at the end is a treasure. Yes. The clues were where I built in the skills. So some of the clues were, all of them were riddles. So they had to solve the riddle. And then some of them were written in code. So they had to like break the code. And I only used one code. I used it twice so that they got repetition with it. The next one will have a harder code. This was a pretty simple one. I also had some clues that were maps. So they had to learn how to read a map. And it was everything from a satellite photo of their school with an X where the next clue was. They had to figure it out. Uh to like line drawings that were like, this line is a road and that box is a building and figure out where you're going. And I also built into it like self-advocacy stuff where they had to go to the library and talk to the librarian to get the next clue. There's a place near us called Mrs. Max where we go to get breakfast a fair amount and they know us. I had to set all these clues up in advance, which took me like an hour. I bought an egg sandwich. It was one of the last clues I planted. And I bought an egg sandwich and I gave them the clue and they put the clue in the bag. And then I just, I went to the bank and I sent my boys who were eight at the time into Mrs. Max to get my egg sandwich, which I'd already paid for. Right. But so a lot of self-advocacy work, a lot of logic and reasoning and that stuff. And the other thing that I did was all of the clues were placed in areas that we'd been before. Ah. So one of my kids at the time was in this like, my life stinks. Nothing good ever happens. I've never done anything interesting. Everything is terrible mode that kids get in sometimes. Yes. So as we went through, we got about halfway through and I was like, have you guys noticed that these clues are all connected to stuff we've done in the past? Cause that might help you find the next one. Right. Cause they were looking at a map and had no idea where to go. And that worked because what I was hoping was that they would start talking about, Oh yeah, we did this and we did that. And yeah. And it wound up, that's what happened was for the rest of the time, as we went from one place to another, they commented oh, on nice. on that stuff. So that's play, right? It is. Yeah. And it, um, <laughs> yeah. For both of you, for all of you. So the how- Creativity I, and the imagination of coming up with those clues. Oh yeah. Thank you. Oh my God. You had to have been like, I'm awesome. <laughs> I was a little bit. I was a little bit like, I, I even found a storm drain that it never gets flooded because it's like the- bank of the pond it's near has moved yeah um because they built it up so i just stuffed it in the the treasure was in the storm drain <laughs> and they had to figure it out they didn't even know it was there because it's oh. like underneath a walking thing yeah um but but so that i was thinking of you while i did that oh my god thank you <laughs> so that you were with us in spirit for that entire thank time thank you oh my god that is so awesome <laughs> that is like the best testimonial ever the concept of you can use play not just to get the attention rolling and to get the dopamine rolling, yeah. but you can use play to teach kids stuff. Yes. Even teaching them how to clean their room can be playful. Yes. That book just it got me going. <laughs> so <laughs> That was the intention. We all need to embrace it more, honestly, because it's when we are at our best. You know, there's, there's a reason why p- kids with ADHD are called the class clown a lot of the times. It's right. Because it's where their abilities lie sometimes, and it's how they activate themselves to stay paying attention in class you know when things are maybe not that interesting in addition to being a mom who has adhd of a kid who has adhd in addition to to being a play expert and particularly a, a play adhd expert and how to use play to get the adhd juices flowing yep. you're also just a doctor just right? a doctor just a doctor, doctor. Just, 
are you working with folks with ADHD in your professional practice? Is that an area of specificity or expertise or what does that look like? For a long time, I used my doctoral degree to do more of the evaluations in school settings and, and also for adults out of the school settings and sometimes for college. When I was working in the school setting in particular, I kept talking about, you know, therapy is not really the, the modus of treatment that's going to work the best for people who have ADHD. That coaching really is the model that should be used. And so everybody kept saying, why don't you just be a coach? So I got my training to be a coach. And that's the model that I use now. And I'm working mostly with adults. Can you, before we go much further, because I'm imagining that the audience doesn't know the difference between therapy and coaching. So oh, can yeah. you tease that out for us a little bit? I can, absolutely. It's, it's the difference between, between saying work on this and play with this, right? When you think about working on something, it's like, ugh, there's like this heaviness to it. And when you say play with something, it means you can be curious, you can manipulate it, you can kind of go at it from different angles. Um, there's a little more leeway. You don't have to have a right answer. There's no right answer. In therapy, that to me is like work. And it means you go to a therapist and the therapist is the expert. They're supposed to have the answers and, you know, and we're going to talk about your childhood and how things affect you and how does it feel. They're going to be cathartic moments. And, you know, if we do cognitive behavioral stuff, there might be some coaching stuff that's involved in that because coaching and cognitive behavioral therapy have a lot of similarities, but it's still under the auspices of being therapy. I'm going to fix you. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what therapy is about. It's about fixing yourself. Coaching, on the other hand, is the expert in the room is the client. The coach is there to help facilitate by maybe asking questions, maybe pointing some things out. But a coach believes that their client has all of the resources and abilities already there. They're just maybe not accessing them or looking at the problem in a way where they can apply what they know. Yeah. It's more future oriented. So we're starting from where we are here today. You know, it's informed by what you know about yourself historically, but it's about where you want to go, how you want to get better. Cause you're great as you are now, even if you've got challenges and struggles, you're great. We need to figure out how you can get better, how you can use some of the skills and things that you know and abilities that you have to move you along. And maybe it's just doing it differently than you have been. Having a different mindset about the work that I'm doing with people makes it more fun. And it, it, is, it is work, but it's fun work for me. Right. Um, and, and the approach that I take is way more engaging. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. So, so, so I moved into doing coaching and um, I have your ADHD life with that podcast on an intermittent yep. and unexpected schedule <laughs> and some of the writing on there. And I, I don't want to let your ADHD life just sort of skim by and not, oh, no. not talk about that. So yeah. let's dig into that a little bit. What's, what's the plan? What's the objective for your ADHD well, life? Well, I think that you and I have, a, our communities have a lot of similarities in that we're including people not just who have ADHD, but also who are affected by it, whether it's, um, you know, teachers of students, younger students or college students, other professionals who work with ADHD clients, parents affected others. It might be a coworker or a spouse or a partner, a friend of somebody who has ADHD. One of my premises is that, you know, if we talk about between, depending on where you read, between five and 10% of the population has ADHD, mm -hmm. that's a significant group. If you're living in the world today, you're likely coming in contact with people who have ADHD 
all the time, whether you know it or not. And so it has an effect on you. It might be your frustration with the kid at the phone store who keeps getting too distracted by, you know, the girls walking by to pay attention to you. Or it might be somebody in, who's acting impulsive at a concert, or it might be a kid in your classroom who hasn't been diagnosed yet, but is struggling and is frustrating you because you can't figure out how to help them. There's all kinds of ways that ADHD affects people on a day-to-day basis. And then, of course, there are those people who have ADHD who they want to be understood by everybody else in the world. They want people to recognize, you know, yeah, I blurted something out. It's not because I'm an idiot or because I have no self-control, right? Right, right. Or I don't respect you, right? It's not a personal thing. It's a brain thing. I think that it's important for everybody to be talking about what it is, how it affects them, um, and to be learning about how to manage it, whether you have ADHD or you're being affected by it in some way or another. If you understand it, you can not take it so personally sometimes, but you can also learn how to help the person who has ADHD or help yourself to take advantage, to capitalize on it. The name of this podcast is ADHD Essentials. Right. Do you have an ending essential about ADHD that you feel like the audience should know? God, so many to choose from. <laughs> well, I think the big one we can go back to is um, the emotional piece, mm-hmm. um, because I do think that that is such a, a strong force when you have ADHD, whether it's our vulnerability to anxiety or depression because of internal and external things that are happening in our lives, that it's important when emotions are starting to feel like they're ruling and sometimes ruining things that you develop a strategy for pausing and really evaluating what's driving my feelings about this. Is it that I think that that person is doing something to me? Is that I feel like I'm not in control? Is it, you know, what is it about the other person, myself, or the situation that's making me, making this emotion come up? Is it possible for me to just state it rather than reacting to it? So I can be mad and just say I'm mad I can even say I'm really effing pissed off without having to yell it or point my finger at my kid or tell them that they're the cause of it. Mm-hmm. I can just state it and move on, you know, or have a conversation about it. Do you have any recommendations on how, how to find the pause? Like, how do, how do you do that? Because that's challenging for folks with ADHD. I think it's going to be different for everybody. Like, you know, I shared earlier that I found that the emotional, emotional outbursts, the, the feelings that would come up for me were having a significant impact and made me, and I felt really bad about myself when it would happen because I realized even though maybe I had every right to feel angry in, this, in the moment, um, it wasn't necessary for me to act it out the way I was. Mm-hmm. And so I literally made a promise out loud, mostly to myself that from that day forward, I was not going to act that way. Mm-hmm. when a certain emotion came up right? and it came up enough that I got practiced. <laughs> <laughs> and when it came up and I could, you know, even if I started reacting, mm-hmm. I would go, Oh God, I said I wasn't going to do this anymore. I would stop, yep. you know, and sometimes the other person would look at me like, what the heck are you doing? And I'd say, no, I said, I wasn't going to do this anymore it felt really powerful to be able to stop myself in the middle of it and eventually Mm -hmm. to get to the point where I wasn't even going there. I would 
feel angry, but I didn't have to act it out. That's awesome. Yeah. Developing that habit and then feeling like I was more in control and taking whatever time I needed to, you know, figure out what I wanted to do with that feeling rather than having to react to it in the moment. Which is not to say I don't get really mad every once in a while. Of course you do. Everybody does. I apologize because it freaks everybody out because it's not how I usually am. But there's just some days when I'm at the end. I'm done. The thing that I like the most about what you just said that's kind of hiding in there and I want to pull it out for our listeners is when you decided that you didn't want to just get mad and go full bore with the anger all the time. Yeah. At first, the pause didn't come before you got mad. The pa- you had to find the pause while you were mad and then do it. Yeah. So for me and for lots of people that I've spoken to, not everybody, but enough, enough people feel that the, the pause has to happen before the emotion takes place. Nope. And that doesn't, that's not true. And if we think about pausing a TV show, you never pause the TV show before it goes from the commercial to the episode, no. right? You pause it in the middle of the episode and some guy's walking and he just stops. Yeah. I mean, I talk about successive approximations, right? You have a goal you want to get to, which is pausing before you say the thing that you don't want to say. But if the pause happens, you've blurted it out and then you say, oh God, I want to take that back. Right. No rule in life that says you can't say that. Yeah. How many times have I said to my kids, I apologize. That was wrong of me to say that. I was angry, but that was not appropriate behavior. That's the first pause that would happen sometimes. But I corrected it at some point. And then that sticks in your head. And then you move back and maybe you're in the middle of it. You know, you've ranted for a minute and then you, ah, I'm going to stop right now. (laughs) Walk away. And, you know, and then it gets easier and easier because each time you're reinforcing, oh, I I remembered. Mm-hmm. I remembered that I don't want to do that anymore. That yeah. to me is huge. It's not a failure that I, you know, already ranted. I remembered that I don't want to do that anymore. That's success. So That is. Yeah. And and there's an extra added benefit to the pause that comes in the middle, especially with your kids, which is you're modeling that behavior for them and you're letting them see that you've apologized and that you're you've stopped midway through now and they're maybe even noticing that you're making progress on this goal that you're trying to accomplish but if you consistently pause before the emotion comes and then don't do the thing that you want to do that's invisible yes they're not going to know that you did that yeah so if you're working towards it and they see that process because you're pausing in the middle or even after yeah making things explicit and letting people see there's so much value i mean even you know, some of us have partners too who need to learn those lessons. Right. So it benefits you and it benefits those people, other people around you who see that. It's a rare person that I know who couldn't improve themselves in some way. And when you model that you're making that effort, it's good for everybody. This has been great, Kirsten. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Brendan. <laughs> still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website adhdessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.